The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The Book of Ecclesiastes. Open up there, please. Thanks a lot, Scott. I'm just going to begin by reading a paragraph that I wrote in a publication. We live in a crooked world that cannot, with any level of human effort, be made straight. It's cursed, making the kindness of God sometimes difficult to visualize. How's he working good in this? Consider uh, some of the various kinds of things that mark our lives. Unstable jobs, orphans, judicial corruption, blown tires, broken legs, sex trafficking, Leaky faucets, divine sovereignty versus human responsibility, failed adoptions, monthly bills, envy, project deadlines, rainy vacations, broken marriages, chronic back pain, pride, pornography, slippery roads, severed relationships, selfishness, racism, bee stings, abortion, and the ever-present death of loved ones and ourselves. This is our world. It's a crooked world. And Ecclesiastes, the the main preacher of the book, is convinced that it's not a crooked world by accident. God is the one who has made it crooked, and none of us can make it straight. And he does it with purpose. So today what I want to do is, is take a peek at this crooked world as the writer of Ecclesiastes assessed it, and consider what his conviction is about what our response should be in light of a very realistic picture of how of the everyday of our lives last week we looked at the main refrain that occurs in verse 1 2 and 12 verse 8 all is hevel everything hevel that's the word in hebrew it, it sounds like a wisp of air, hevel, and it means a wisp of air, a breath. And so our responsibility is to try to figure out how is this word breath being used in this book. And I argued that the refrain, a shepherding of wind, all is hevel, a shepherding of wind helps give us an idea that it's like trying to get wind under control. That's what our life is like. It's impossible. We can't grasp it. Whether it's good or bad, ultimately, when we take a step back, there's enigma that is part of life. Mystery. And God made it this way on purpose. Everything is mysterious at some level. Everything is enigmatic, ungraspable. So what we're going to do today is look specifically at some of his queries, his wrestlings with life, his investigation and his conclusions, and then see how the final author of the book, who could have been the same guy, um, perhaps not, put it all together. So here's our refrain. And as we move toward here, I'm just going to pray one more time. God, this is a broken world. 
And there's some in here that are in a season where they can delight in major ways in the gifts that you have given. And there's others here who are in a season, the kind of seasons that ultimately dominate our lives, seasons of darkness, wherein hope, hope is generated in our soul for something better. I thank you that though the sun has risen upon us, the dawn is not it. If dawn was all that was foreseeable, the light that we're experiencing would not be agreeable. It would feel more like lingering night than the start of a day. But indeed, the sun has risen and it gives us promise that noon is coming. And we long for the day when all the shadows will flee and the light will burn bright above us. Carry us through this journey from birth to death, from peace to war, from love to hatred. Carry us through this journey. Keep us firmly fixed in wisdom. Keep our eyes set on the One who has gone before, who is our wisdom. And hold us. Never let us go until the day You bring us home. For Your glory, I pray these things. Do that kind of work in this room today. Amen. Here's the refrain. Ultimate enigma. Hevel of hevels. Enigma of enigma. So if, if it, in, in Hebrew you can't express superlatives, there's no um, specific word that says it's the, it's the most, it's the best. So you say the holy of holies, the king of kings. That's the holiest of all holies, the king of all kings, the song of all songs, or enigma of enigma, that is the ultimate enigma. Everything is the ultimate enigma, says the preacher. Ultimate enigma, all is enigma. The life, that life is unsatisfying, fleeting, repetitive, troublesome. It creates something in our soul. Puzzlement, mystery even vexation, and this is not just for non-believers. I said last week that this is not a book that says everything is enigmatic until you meet God. Then everything becomes clear. Or everything is meaningless until you meet God. Then all of a sudden you gain meaning. I don't think that's the point of the book. Because all is hevel even for, well, it's for everyone who's under the sun. Everyone, and that's all of us in this room. All of us who are living in this crooked world. And so, this is a reality, the unsatisfying, repetitive, troublesome life creating high levels of puzzlement, mystery, even vexation, not only for non-believers, but for believers as well. God has brought a curse on the world. It's part of the result of sin. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is bound up in this cursed world. He's one who was king in Jerusalem, who had everything possible, including the highest level of wisdom. And yet he's recognized, even for him, life is filled with mystery, perplexity, even deep-seated vexation. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? None of us. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. That's 
the work of God. And behold, all of, it, all of it is an enigma and a shepherding of wind, trying to get your hand around these things. And you can't do it. Why does God put us in a world like this? Why me? Why this hard? Why this long? Why this dark? Why this broken? What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I saw all the work of God, and that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. We might be able to get a little grasp of one of the things that God is doing, but there are thousands of things that we can't even taste and see. Because He is God, and we are not. He's made us in this world as creatures, And then we're sinners to add on to that. We are so small and He is so big. The bright purposes and kindnesses of God so quickly get dimmed by a whole host of things in this book. Like the monotony of life's repetitions. How quickly one is forgotten after death. The brevity of wisdom, skill, and wealth. The fact that rebel and remnant experience birth and death, love and hate, peace and war. All of a sudden, I'm a Christian. Life is smooth. That's not the world we live in. That's not the world God's made. In the overlap of the ages, we are still in this brokenness, but our identity is not in this brokenness. In the brokenness, it's all identified with Adam. But we are now identified with the last Adam. Our inheritance is set. The Spirit of the living Christ has come into our being. We are His, but we're still here. Christians still battling with sin. Christians still battling with cancer. Christians still facing the ever-present reality of death. God has subjected the world to what? Futility. Matoiates. That's the Greek translation of hevel. And I think Paul in Romans 8, when he says, the whole world is subjected to frustration, enigma, in hope. This creation is groaning, and that's the world you and I are a part of. It's the enigmatic world. A broken, frustrating world. Why does God do this? Injustice and oppression, ignorance, discontentment, financial loss, persistent battle with sin, unexpected trial, all of these cause the kindnesses of God to be dimmed in our eyes where we don't understand all that God is doing. And this man, I think it's Solomon, now at the, it appears to be at the end of his life, is wanting to pass on his wisdom to us. This is a broken world. We need to recognize it. Ecclesiastes is under the sun theology. That's the key phrase that clarifies the sphere in which the audience and the author lives. There's no lasting gain under the sun. We read that in chapter 1, right off the bat. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you can't take the U-Haul with you to the grave, there's not lasting gain. Death comes to all. 
Nothing new happens under the sun. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. It's this cyclical, repetitive pattern, and yet, far too quickly, we don't learn by the past. We don't learn from the past. We have such a myopic, short-term view of life, and, I mean, yesterday, I, uh, my family had the privilege of going over to Rick and Adrian Siegel's house for lunch, and he took me into his study, and one of the things that has been a passion of his for um, the last 11, 12 years or so is reading presidential biography. And he started with Washington, and he's up to James Buchanan. So he's just reading. He actually got a list from the Library of Congress. If you were, as the librarian, to pick one major biography of every president, which one would you pick? So he's in the process of acquiring these biographies and slowly reading, but doing it in a historical order. And then, as you can imagine, you always start with the birth of this guy. So that means you know, you're, you're constantly going back and you're working through the cycles because the presidents were alive while the other one was alive. And they're each boy is growing up in a similar field but in a different place. And then they become this man of greatness. We don't have many people today who are driven by that kind of view of history, wanting to go back and learn. One of the questions I asked him is, how much has your study of these great men influenced your becoming a man of influence? How has it impacted your being a father and what you've tried to pass on to your boys? We learn from history far too little. And that's one of the points that the preacher bemoans. All that is done under the sun is an enigma. And because of this, it is grievous. Verse 14. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is hevel and a shepherding of wind. I just can't get my hands around it. It's under the sun, that's where we live. Under the sun, there are corruptions, there's oppressions, there's evil deeds and grievous evil. That's our world. All life as we know it is under the sun. You don't leave from being under the sun when you become a believer. Usually, God has believers stick around. Most of us are not like the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Like moments after he gets saved was his final breath. Most of us don't have that experience. Instead, God chooses to leave us here. Imperfect people, but ever progressing. And I say, why? Well, it must be for his glory, right? Well, in what way? It must be specifically to magnify the glory of Christ at the cross. So that you and I, for eternity, in heaven, well, that's not eternity, New earth, on the new earth for eternity, with transformed bodies, will actually have a history to look back upon. And remember, every time that God humbled us in light of when we were living under the sun, every time He humbled us and broke us and crushed us and nurtured within our soul this dependence that magnified the work of Christ. Every opportunity after sin to repent one more time in order to magnify the gospel. 
God has put us in this world still struggling with sin, still struggling with sickness, still struggling with fear of loss and of death. In order that over and over and over again, we in this life might be able to taste and see that God is good over and over and over again so that for eternity we'll be able to look back and give testimony in our own experience of the magnificence of Christ in pulling us through a very broke, broken, crooked world. And Jesus will be made more of in our lives for eternity. All life as we know it happens under the sun. All of life, believer and non-believer alike. And it comes as a gift of God. Chapter 5, 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. Life is a gift of God. 8.15 And I commend joy. How can he commend joy? In a broken world. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him. All these things coming from God. Toils, labors, and deeds. Joy, time, and chance. That's how it feels to us. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Wisdom. This too, a gift of God under the sun. Mankind cannot discern all that God is doing, has done, and is presently at work accomplishing under the sun. And I think that's what this book is wrestling with. And that is frustrating because we are built in our inner makeup wanting to be in control. And this is a book that is saying if you live in the world the way you're supposed to live, it will break you. We're not in control. It's like shepherding wind. That's what life in the world is like. Everyone, believer and non-believer alike, is part of life under the sun. And in this world, all is enigmatic. Ultimate enigma, says the preacher. Ultimate enigma. All is enigma. For the creation that you and I were born into was subjected to matoyates. Enigma. Frustration. That's how I would prefer to translate it. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Whoever subjected the world to frustration did so in hope. That's why I don't think this is Satan. Satan doesn't subject in hope. Satan is an agent working, bringing evil and brokenness in this world. But God is the one who ultimately brought the curse on the world, but he didn't do so in order to make that the final end. For a bunch of sinners, how do you move sinners? How do you build a bridge? How do you move them across the bridge? You can't only provide the bridge, like Pastor Jason said this morning, you have to do something in their soul to make them realize their need for the bridge. Notice how the writer talks. Why then has God cursed the world and rendered it enigmatic? Two reasons. Number one, it's designed to create fear. God does things the way He does in order to spark a fear of Him. He's big and I am not. I am small. 
He is my only answer. I'm part of the problem. He's the solution. God wants, he creates a world that is made broken so that we will see our neediness. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to humble people. So he puts us in a, in a world where he's going to nurture, for those who have eyes to see, nurture humility. And it's the humble who receive the blessing of God. To create a fear of him, a reverence of him. Work out your salvation. How? With fear and with trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All of it is about God. And it should cause us to tremble. He puts us in a world where we are small, where we're out of control, and where he is in absolute control. And for those who are able to recognize it, all of a sudden you've walked onto the path of wisdom. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity into man's hearts. And yet, so I think what that means is he gives us capacity, longings. And yet he doesn't fill that capacity while we are under the sun. Capacity to know, capacity to grasp. And yet under the sun, he does not fill it. Notice what it says. We're talking about what God has done. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. The way that he's created us is to have a massive capacity and yet he isn't allowing it to be filled under the sun. Right now we we know dimly. Then we shall know. We shall see, know fully when we see him face to face. I perceive, notice, so consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? I perceived that whatever God has done endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. Why does God make a world crooked? Consider the work of God. Why does He do it? Last line. So that people fear before Him. That the purpose of God in working the world as He is, making us feel massively small, just making us say, God, why is it going this way? This is not how I would have done it. I forget that movie. Um, It had a, uh, what's his name? Um, There was a black guy who was God and a crazy guy who was, Wanting to be God. Yeah, Morgan Freeman was God, and I forget what the movie was. But anyway, so God let this other guy become God. What? Bruce Almighty. And Bruce Almighty thinks it's going to be easy to be God. And finally, all the prairie quests start coming in on his computer, and he's overwhelmed. So finally, he just decides, I'll just say yes to them all just to make it easy. And the world goes into utter chaos. And the point is saying, we are small. We can't get all that God is doing. And God does it this way, so that we would fear Him. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is enigma, mystery. But God is the one you must fear. That's the first level response that we should have in this world. Fear God. Not in a way of running from Him. No, this fear in this book is the opposite of foolishness. Fearing God is the proper 
response. Paul in Romans 3, citing the Psalter, he says, here's the problem with the world. No one fears God. This is just the beginning of wisdom. Here's how you get on the right path. You start with an understanding that I am small and he is big. You revere him. You recognize him as God. And in doing so, you're trusting that he's in control even when you're not. God has done it so that people would fear him. The reason God does what he does is in order to put people who have eyes to see in a context of dependence. It's a means of grace, the brokenness, the suffering. Think about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the... uh, persecutions, trials I underwent in Asia. I was at the point of death We had the sentence of death in ourselves, and then he says the purpose, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, you've got to know, church, I was in a moment where I thought I was going to die. And then he says, so that, that it wasn't random, it wasn't by chance, there was a divine purpose in it. God was working his will in order to put me in a position to weed out all the self-reliance in my soul. He did it so that I would not trust in myself, but on God. A beefy theology of suffering, that's one of the reasons this book is in our Bible. To help us, because this is real life. I'm saying he's not a fatalist, he's not a pessimist. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is a realist and a godly sage calling us to say, this world is broken, but we have a God who's in control. Don't doubt it. Fear him. If you learn rightly from the brokenness of the world, this will be the result. You will live with an ever-present fear of your God. And when the mountain is glowing, you won't be like Israel, turning from that glory and forgetting so quickly and entering into the golden calf idolatry. Rather, your eyes will be fixed and you'll be part of the new covenant as Jeremiah 32 promises. I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will never turn from you. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will never turn from me. That's new covenant grace. And Koheleth, the preacher, is calling us to that kind of life. And in the new covenant, we not only have the call, we have the power. Number two reason why God creates the world this way. To create a people who seek real gain beyond judgment. A number of people have interpreted Ecclesiastes as if he has no view of the afterlife, as if he's such a pessimist and fatalist, death is the end for beast and man, and there's nothing more, therefore, what's the point of life? And as we look at a number of passages in this book, you tell me if you think he has no view of the afterlife. I think that conviction in something beyond the grave is the only thing that drives him. The preacher believed there was no gain under the sun. Notice, under the sun, there's no ultimate gain. Why? Because everyone under the sun dies. Everyone. There's no gain under the sun, but he was equally convinced that there is more gain in wisdom than in foolishness. So if there's no gain, how can there be more gain? That's my question. If there's absolutely no gain in this world, how can there be something that is gain? Namely, wisdom has more gain than 
foolishness. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was enigma and a shepherding of wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. How can there be more gain if there is no gain? I want to suggest the gain must be in a different sphere. He specifies first there's nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, maybe the gain in wisdom is beyond under the sun. How can there be no gain and yet more gain? Here's my answer. Those who fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom, those who fear God are enabled to enjoy this world as a gift of the Creator and therefore as a channel of worship. Why is there more gain in wisdom? Because when you take that step of fear, it puts you in a context of your ultimate purpose, fearing uh, worship. Imaging and displaying the worth of God. That's what God made us. Imagers of God. And then he called us to fill the earth and multiply and subdue it as imagers of God. To take his image of glory, his worth, his kingship to the ends of the earth. That when people look at you struggling through suffering, what they see is the worth of God. I will not stop my trust in him. Where else can I go? He alone holds the words of eternal life. That the worth of God is so compelling to my soul that I will not let it go. God creates a world where there's brokenness in order to put us in a context where we participate in our main purpose, worship. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Take every chance you can to delight in the gifts of God. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Notice, when you get to delight in sex, delight in drink, delight in food, God's way... The result should be, thanks be to God. It comes from His hand. From a, for apart from Him, who can eat or have enjoyment? Here's the reality of the world that we're living in. And some of you who've gotten saved later in life, who were part of the business world, and then came out of it, this is, you recognize this right here. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy it. Instead, he's always wanting more. He's always discontented. God is the one who bestows the gift to find delight right where you're planted. And if you're not there, pray that God would give it to you. It's a gift. It comes from his hand. This is an enigma. It is a grievous evil. Remember your Creator. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. Fearing God is about remembering our Creator. Remember when we were way back in Genesis 1, we saw God made the... uh, God said, let there be light. God's the one who separated the waters above from below. God's the one who made the land. God is the one who put the luminaries in the sky. God is the one who put the birds in the air and the fish in the sea. God is the one who put the animals on the earth and created man. Over and over again in Genesis 1, unnecessarily so, there was the repetition of God. 35 times Elohim shows up. God, 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 and that's the world we're living in. So that when we see that moose, or when we see that, or when we delight in that watermelon, what's it supposed to do? Remind us of God. 
God, 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 so that everything is seen to come from Him, but it's designed to move us back to Him. It's the purpose of creation. So, He says, remember your Creator, and when you do, it'll put you into right order and give you the opportunity to delight in His good gifts the right way. It's one of the reasons God makes things the way He does. But also, those who walk in wisdom today, why does He create a world where he moves people to fear. Because as you walk in wisdom, fearing God, and living in light of the future judgment, it's this group that will escape the wrath that will one day fall on the wicked. Notice how he talks. I said in my heart, God will indeed judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Judgment day is coming. He's convinced of it. Not only that, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Is this life being preserved in the here and now? Let's look at this verse. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Even in a world where the sinners are triumphing over those who fear God, this I know, the life of wisdom will preserve your life. I think he's thinking beyond the grave. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Notice his perspective. It won't be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before the Lord. So up here, the wicked sinner is one who who does evil a hundred times and is prolonging his life, yet he says... It will not be well with the wicked. If they have everything right in this life, but it still won't be well with them, it suggests he's looking to the next. That is where the writer of Ecclesiastes is calling his people to live for. Fear God in the present. Fear God today in light of the future judgment. And you can be assured hope for tomorrow. The fear of God today leads to the approval of God today which frees you and me to delight today as we hope for tomorrow. One of the key themes in this book is is the seize the day mentality. If God gives you a chance to enjoy a picnic, have you started your picnics yet? All right, how many did you have last year? 60 picnics. They actually count them. They've been doing this for years. So, 60 picnics, and they take the entire herd. How, 11? Huh? Eight kids. So, 10 of you, not 11. Okay. So, all 11 of them just go, and they usually bring a family with them, and it's delightful. When God gives you that chance, do it. That's what he's saying. Delight whenever God gives you the chance, because know this. There's going to be a lot of hard days when picnics are not called for. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know this, with every choice you make, every delight you have, every movie you watch, every song you listen to, every walk in the breezy park that you have, know this, do so in light of the future judgment day. That's what curbs a free-for-all spirit that enters you into sin. 
You take every opportunity. This is the most, I believe, the most hedonistic book in all the Old Testament. But it's a realistic hedonism that says, have your heart so satisfied in God that when He gives you the opportunity to delight, you do so as if it's a gift from God. And when He brings trouble into your life, have your heart so satisfied in Him that the fear of God is maintained. Your trust in God never swerves. Your eyes are fixed on eternity. And you persevere in your hope, even when everything is going crazy. No, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remember your Creator. Remember Him. Here's my summary of this book. Number one, I'm just going to walk through the big picture now, just put it all together. Number one, God has cursed this world. But He didn't do so in a way that envisioned curse would be the end. But all of us are part of this cursed world. We're born into it. We're part of the problem. And then He reaches in and He redeems us. But even in the midst of it, He doesn't keep us from the world's brokenness. But He promises to be our shelter from all trouble. That we can experience cancer and car accidents And broken pencils or crashed hard drives and do so with a level of stability, not because we're in control, but because our God's in control. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has cursed the world in such a way to create enigma. It's his purpose. So that he puts the world the way that he does with pain and pleasure and puts you and I right in the middle of it so that we will not feel in control, so that we will feel the weightiness of the mystery of this world. That's part of his purpose. Notice the, so that man may not find out. Number two, God does it this way, puts us in the context of unknowingness. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. He puts us in this world just like this, not only... The the enigmatic nature of the world, he does this so that we will fear him. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. God has done it so that people will fear him. Number three, ultimately life under the sun is out of our control. Grasping it is like trying to shepherd the wind. I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is enigma. All of it. And shepherding of wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. This cannot be made straight. The idea is, I'm trying to make it straight. If I could have the easy life, I would naturally choose that path. But I can't fight my God. And He's calling me to surrender my will of fighting and to enter into a disposition of trust. In this broken world where for us it's out of control, it feels like 
shepherding wind, we can either become despondent or, here's, I think, a key element of the book, or we can trust our one shepherd. So the, the root to shepherd, I wrote it on the board last week. In Hebrew, ra'ah, this root shows up seven times in the preacher's words. And it's always in this phrase, the shepherding of wind. In our ESV, it's translated striving after wind. But as I tried to wrestle with how to understand this word, this is what I noted, that this root shows up only one other time in the book, and it's in the final verses of the book where it says, all wisdom, the words of the wise are like goads. They guide us. They're like nails that set us firmly where we're supposed to be. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one roeh, one shepherd. And all of our English translations capitalize shepherd, I think rightly, stressing that God is the ultimate controller of all. He's the one who is saying this is the path of wisdom. He's the one who's orchestrating all things from beginning to end. Out of our control, yes, but he's in control. So when the world seems like it's shepherding wind to us, the answer, the call of the book is, okay, you've got two options. Despondency or trust your shepherd. Will you trust the shepherd today? The fear of our shepherd helps one live wisely today and empowers one to enjoy life in the present whenever possible. So because we fear our God, He's on our side. He's already approved of our labors when we feared Him. So we don't have to be cautious about stepping out in our joy, stepping out to delight. I, I don't know if I should really enjoy my wife this much, or I don't know if I should really pause because this is a broken world and there's so many other people in pain. Should I pause and, and enjoy this sunset? Yes, you should. Count it as a gift of God because most of your life is not going to be able to enjoy sunsets. Take every opportunity, yet do so in light of the future judgment. Fear your shepherd. And as you fear him, all of a sudden you're in a place where you don't have to worry about tomorrow. You can delight in today if he gives you the, jo- the opportunity to delight. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. The fear of our shepherd today also secures our future tomorrow after judgment. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know this, that it will be well with those who fear God. So you fear him today and it gives you security for tomorrow. It's our lack of fear when all of a sudden we allow the chaos of this world to overcome us in anxiety. It's a signal we're not trusting God like we should be. Our assurance for tomorrow is not in being strong enough to make it happen. It's being open-handed enough to trust our God to make it happen. There's only three places in the Bible where one shepherd shows up. Ezekiel 34, if you're walking through Jesus' Bible, in the arrangement that it is, Ezekiel 34 is the first. There God is the great shepherd. 
And then he sets up his one shepherd, the Messiah, who will rule his people in righteousness. One shepherd. Then we come to Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. And we read, all wisdom comes from one shepherd. Now in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that the one shepherd, that use of one, is designed to be an echo in our ears of Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. It's supposed to connect us with God, and yet, who's talking to us? He was the king in Jerusalem, who had all wisdom. And the king in Jerusalem is the representative of the people, and he's the pointer, the son of David, is the pointer to the ultimate son of David. So, the wisdom of God that's coming from God as the shepherd is coming through the king, who is the shepherd of his people. That's what David is actually called. I took you from... Shepherding the flocks in order to shepherd my people. 2 Samuel chapter 5. So Yahweh is the good shepherd, but David is the shepherd. And right now the wisdom that's pouring through Solomon as the shepherd of Israel is coming from the great shepherd above. But all of a sudden, reading Ecclesiastes within the framework of Scripture sets us up for something. It sets us up for the third instance of one shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have sheep that are not Jews. I'm talking to Jews. My ministry is restricted to the Jews right now, but I have sheep that are not Jewish. I must bring them also. How many of you fit into that other fold? I do. Is there anyone who fits into the Jewish fold in this room? Not today? One? Praise the Lord. May God multiply the Jews as he's promised to, I think. But God's vision was always bigger. The curse would be overcome when the blessing would go through Abraham and his offspring to the nations. Through you, Abraham, all the world would be blessed. Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ultimate representative king of Israel, through whom the world is blessed. He is the ultimate shepherd. I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Some who have argued for a negative view of this book have said there's no reason that God would be called shepherd at the end of Ecclesiastes. So that one shepherd, you shouldn't capitalize it. It should be small s. And I can't think of a better word, actually, to designate God as a provider and as protector at the end of a book that is about my world being in chaos. My world is like shepherding wind, and yet I have a shepherd who's been controlling all things from beginning to end well, and he has one shepherd. And from this shepherd, all of a sudden, I gain a security that overcomes all curse. Notice, my sheep. Who? The sheep of the one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. This is the security of a people who find themselves in a broken, cursed, enigmatic world, but who fear their God. You become the sheep of God if you have ears to hear. You know Him. He knows us. We follow Him. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of 
my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Ecclesiastes is calling people to surrender their hearts to the one shepherd of the universe. Will you surrender? That's the call of the book. Will you surrender? Yes, it's a broken world. Yes, this world doesn't make sense. Will we surrender? So here's the end of the matter. This synthesizes it. What am I supposed to do in a a world that doesn't make sense? The end of the matter, all has been heard. I think the, the final words of the book agree with the preacher, not stand against him. Here's my synthesis, he says. In a world that doesn't make sense, fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. When you don't know what else to do, where else to go, just breathe. Take your next step, fearing God and keeping His commandments. When you don't know where else to go, how you're supposed to feel, what does feeling rightly look like right now? Sometimes we don't even know. What decision should I make right now? Do I pull the plug on the business or don't I? And God doesn't always give us the answers. But he says this, here's the end of the matter. Fear me and keep my commandments. And as you walk on this path, keeping in mind that God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil, know this, I will carry you through the end. This is a book worth celebrating. This is the words of someone that I can relate with. I need to hear this wisdom. Because far too often, life is not sunshine at noon. Life is very gray and dim and dark. I just thought of something. I want to, uh, I'm going to end my, my talking time with perhaps um, some reflections I wrote a long time ago. John Newton. I'm going to pull the plug here. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, wrote these words. The day is now breaking. How beautiful its appearance. How welcome the expectation of the approaching sun. It is this thought that makes dawn agreeable, that the sun is approaching, that day is awakening, that it's presage of a brighter light. That is the presage of a brighter light. Otherwise, if we expect no more day than it is this minute, we should rather complain of darkness than rejoice in the early beauties of the morning. Thus, the life of grace is the dawn of immortality, beautiful beyond expression if compared with the night and thick darkness which formerly covered us, yet faint, indistinct, and unsatisfying in comparison to the glory that shall be revealed. That's John Newton. Here's Jason DeRoshi. The sun breaks... And beauty appears, a daily reminder that all our fears of dread are past, though pain persists, the toil, the sorrow, a persistent mist that will be burned away in the course of time, a hopeful rest 
when full glow shines. The light of dawn is only agreeable because the light of noon is foreseeable. If no hope existed for a brighter light, sustained shadows would be lingering night. Yet darkness is passing. The true light glows, a brightening sky overcoming sorrows. The dawn of immortality is the life we tread. A life of grace because Christ bled, taking wrath we all deserve. A gift of love to preserve a people for himself into the age to come. The curse abolished in the rise of the sun. Theology of Ecclesiastes. Let me pray. Father, we praise you that dawn is not the end, that the sun has risen and it will glow full force. May our glimmers, our sight of the glimmers of light, move us to delight when you let us delight and to fear always and to keep your commandments. Help us be unswerving in our faith in a God who is our shepherd. Where else can we go? You alone hold the words of eternal life. So when we feel broken, when we feel sad, when we feel weary, remind us that the sun has risen, that night is passing, that true light is shining, and one day it will shine fully, all shadows passing. It will shine fully on those who, while under the sun, fear God and keep his commandments. Make us those people, I pray. Help us, help our unbelief, overcome it, and keep us as you have promised. Your sheep, hear your voice. We follow you. You know us. You give us eternal life, and we will never perish. No one can snatch us out of your hand. We rest in such truths today. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.